Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live, in person, outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to ConsciousCompanyLeadersForum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. Every day of my life getting told, no, you're not going to be able to do this fund. You're not going to be able to do this dream. Whatever this thing you, this thing you have in your mind is impossible. Being told that over and over again, having people shut doors in my face or uh, laugh at me, to get that yes of confidence, that's all I needed. Arlen Hamilton arrived in Silicon Valley when she was 34 with big dreams of becoming a venture capitalist. But the thing was, is she was broke, had no network, and had absolutely no financial background. But she was driven to make a change after learning that less than 10% of all venture capital deals go to women, and those stats are even worse for women of color and the LBGTQ community. Despite facing many naysayers, Arlen secured her first investments and launched Backstage Capital. Since its inception, her firm has invested more than $4 million in 100 companies led by underrepresented founders. And in 2018, Backstage announced a new $36 million fund called the It's About Damn Time Fund, which invests exclusively in Black female founders. Stay tuned to hear how Arlen built Backstage Capital by keeping hold of a vision for a more equitable future and by truly staying true to herself. You came from the music industry and now you're in the VC world. How the hell did that happen? (laughs) Well, when you say music industry, it makes it sound fancier than it really is uh, or was. I was in the production coordination uh, business. So I worked behind the scenes on concert tours and and different one-off shows, which I loved. It was something that I spent spent 15 years or so trying to get into. So... um, it was a lot of fun and, and it was a lot of, uh, it was a satisfying career. However, um, I, I'm just a really curious person. And so once I was on the road, I had a lot of time. There's a lot of time between gigs. So I would spend a lot of that time learning about the startup world. And um, just from seeing people like Ellen and Ashton Kutcher and Troy Carter and Scooter Braun, all of these people were behind the scenes or entertainers, behind the scenes in entertainment or entertainers themselves. And they were making investments in small companies out of some place called Silicon Valley. And I wanted to know why they would do that and what was exciting because I was trying to follow their trend, like follow, it, it didn't, it was intriguing to me that, that people who had what you would consider really great and, and satisfying lives we're still chasing this thing over here that seemed pretty small. So I wanted to know what that was. So that's when I started learning more about startups. I actually applied to 
different startups um, without knowing that's what they were. Like I applied to Airbnb, I think in 2011, 2010, uh, as a customer service rep. Um, Didn't get the job, but you know, I'm thankful for that today. And um, one of somewhat, you know, executive at Airbnb now invests in our company. So it's like a good full circle. And the more I learned about startups, the more I liked it. The more I liked the world, the more I liked the potential. And um, the more I learned about discrepancies and how much money was going to white men and everybody else. So if you weren't a white man, you were getting, you were sharing 10% of all venture funding. And that statistic just made no sense to me. And I also was talking to a lot of founders at that time and seeing how much they were struggling and seeing how much they had to offer. So on both sides, it seemed really uh, natural to me to give more funding to people who could do more with it and to also find great deals and great innovations and great um, uh, alignments for people who had money who didn't really have that much um, deal flow or didn't have differentiated deal flow or interesting deal flow. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of angels and a lot of uh, VCs who were just not seeing these deals that I was seeing. So it made a lot of sense to me to put myself in that position to be a bridge So it made a lot of sense for you to put yourself in that position. Yes. How the hell did you put yourself in that position? Um, Yeah, it's a long story. Uh, It's not not easy to, uh, it's not a linear path. Like most things are not linear paths. I mean, a lot led up to it if I think about it. But I, the first couple of years, so, you know, 2011 to 2013, middle of 14, was me researching and learning and and interviewing essentially people, you know, grilling them and finding out about them. Um, And then throughout that same time period, I started these little ideas of funds. Like first I was going to do a fund that was a million dollar fund for LGBT founders. And I started, went out to all these angels and asked if they would back that and nobody would touch it and nobody would even think that it was, Nobody even thought it was anywhere close to being necessary or uh, viable or anything like that. And so, you know, I'd work on things like that for three to six months and it wouldn't really come together. And this is in addition to my other job and in addition to trying to make ends meet and all sorts of things going on. And then the summer of 2014, after I had researched for hundreds and hundreds of hours to, you know, total and talked to dozens of people, if not more, I made a decision, a very conscious decision, 2014 summer. I was in a parking lot at a hotel that I was staying in with my mom, and I was pacing the parking lot, and I was deciding, what am I going to do next? Like, what, am I gonna start a company because I really wanna start something, or do I, do I start a fund, which, is, which sounds so crazy to me right now, but at the same time, it sounds like if I'm thinking about it and if I've been working on it and I know the players and I know the rules, maybe I should give it a try. So I asked a few people who know me well what they thought and they gave me all kinds of different answers so it didn't really help. And then I just asked myself and in this parking lot I paced, I paced and finally I said, you know, I could start a company and I could probably 
hack my way to raising for it because now I know all these inside and out secrets because I've been talking to VCs a lot and to founders. Or maybe I could start a fund that affected hundreds of founders and hundreds of companies. And what would that look like? And that, that day I made the decision, I'm going all in and I'm not going to stop until I have a venture capital fund that it's investing out of, that I'm investing out of. So when most people talk about like, I, I'm going to start a fund, um, <laughs> yeah. at least for me, yes. there's this story that like, oh, you either come from money mm-hmm. or you have a traditional background in finance mm-hmm. and you know what you're doing. Yes. Where you uh, you were more self-taught and just like this like yeah. level of curiosity and persistence that I think is so interesting so i'm curious for you how did you kind of overcome the mental barrier that we a lot of times have where we convince ourselves that that's for someone else to do that's not for me to do i think um you know i'm asked about that every every so often and it's hard for me to to describe it because i've always had it i just don't i just think that we are all capable of so much and i just think i don't ask uh why like I ask why not you know like why I don't ask why I ask why not like what I mean yeah it's not going to be easy but all of the people that I had looked at and observed admired my whole life did things that were not easy that was the point of it I think Tom Hanks said that in the league of their own if it if it was easy everyone would do it (laughs) and so I wasn't um that part wasn't the challenge for me. It wasn't like, oh, this is going to be difficult. This is going to be nearly impossible. It was, that part was actually exciting to me. Like, if I can pull this off, wow, right? The part that was difficult was the time. Like, how long will this take? And if will it take me so long that I won't be able to do the things that I think need to be done now? Because this was an issue. This wasn't just about me. This was actually happening in the world. This was actually happening in our country, where we were not, but people were just being overlooked and their companies were fading and dying out and people weren't giving, even getting a chance to start. So if it takes me 10 years to do this, starting in 2014, is it going to be enough? That was my biggest challenge. The part of, well, I don't know anything about venture capital. Oh, I don't know anything about financial models. Oh, I don't know anybody, you know, who who has a fund personally. I don't know them beyond just maybe a conversation. All of that, I felt that can be tackled. That can be something that um, you can work towards. And tackle it, you did. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have your parking lot moment in 2014. Yeah. You decide you're going to raise a fund. Well, officially, yeah. I I had decided before, but I was deciding, do I keep going with this? Or do I start a company and kind of take it easy on myself? So what did you do from there? From there, I actually got in touch with, um, the, a little bit of a turning point was when I reached out to Sam Altman's brother. So Sam Altman is the president, or sorry, the he's the president, I think, of Y Combinator, definitely leads Y Combinator. And um, at the time, he had just been in that role for a couple of years. I think. And I just read about him and I listened to stuff that he said and I thought it was interesting. I, I liked that he was a young whippersnapper and, you know, <laughs> that he was doing cool things. So I reached out to his brother because I couldn't find his contact information. Nice. His brother, Good Jack. Family. <laughs> yeah, I went for Jack on LinkedIn and I wrote to Jack and I said, uh, can you introduce me to Sam? 
And he said, no. And I said, great. Um, can you look at my pitch deck and, and tell me your thoughts on it? And he said, sure. So he looked at it and like 24 hours later, he wrote back. And he's like, I'm going to introduce you to Sam because he'll, he'll want to see this. And so, um, you know, I don't necessarily suggest reaching out to people's siblings. It's not the, it's not, it's kind of uncouth, but it worked for this situation. And um, he get, he had Sam call me. And so I, I had a phone call with Sam I think it was September 2014 because it, um, I think that, that was around the time I was doing this. We were trying to figure out where to live. And um, we talked and he said, you know, it's a longer story, but basically he said, the world needs what you're doing. I want to help you somehow. So the first thing he did was he tried to get me into Y Combinator as a fund. It would have been Y Combinator's first fund. And he tried over a few weeks, but the other people at Y Combinator just couldn't get on board with it. They didn't really think it would scale, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is funny. Um, <laughs> but he said, okay, look, I'll introduce you to this lawyer I know who's fantastic. And um, at, at the very least, you'll have support for what you're doing. So he introduces me to this lawyer who turns out, turns out to be like the biggest like fund formation lawyer there is. He's like everybody you knows uh, <laughs> like their lawyer. And for a year, he was very helpful um, at at, uh, at the law firm that that was, and that was kind of a turning point because it made me, it gave me a little bit of definitely gave me stability, and they were doing it based on Sam's reputation rather than mine because I wouldn't have been able to do that at all. I had no money, and so Sam was sort of backing me from a distance and saying, "I got I got her if this doesn't come through." So for a year. They worked with me for free, and got and taught me so much, and so that was that was helpful. That was definitely helpful. So then, with that, um, I felt confident enough to really start approaching funders, angels, fund managers, private family offices, things like that. That I would just research for hours and hours. I mean, it was just. I don't even know if a movie can be made about it because it would just be someone reading and, <laughs> and watching videos and reaching out to people constantly. But it was just that. I just, there was no stopping me. There's nothing. So I would talk to, um, you know, dozens of people knowing that I would only get a yes every so often. And for a solid year after that, I got all no's. Nobody was interested. Not one person was interested. They all... Uh, you know, there's a good percentage, maybe 20, 30% of people who wished me luck and said, you know, I hope this works for you. But none of them were about to invest their own money. That was just not happening. So um, some months went by. I um, ended up meeting um, an angel investor named Susan Kimberlin. And I think it's important that it was a woman angel investor. These two things are important here because it was someone who could take risk with their own money. And I love angel investors. I think angel investors are like, uh, I w if I could only deal with them, I would, because I think they're the, they really are the foundation of innovation and they will be for the next 10 years. And the fact that it was a woman, it was someone who, um, um, who really understood the pain point. Her hurdle, it took us about three months to get there. So her hurdle, my hurdle for her was just convincing her that with no background, no connections, no real next check either. Like I was going to be able to invest in the hundred companies that I was claiming I was going to invest in by 2020. So imagine you're her 
you meet me in 2015. I'm homeless. I have no no money. I also have no bank account. When you go to try to give me a little bit of money, you have to send it to my mom's bank account. So you say no. <laughs> um, I'm 34 in this situation. So I, sh- you know, same age as you, and I should have it together. I, um, I don't really dress the part. I don't look the part. I don't have the background. I don't have the references. I didn't go to college. All these things. And I'm coming to you and saying, hey, I want to start a venture capital fund, and I want to invest in 100 companies that are led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. And you're in a, you're in a year, too, where nobody's talking about that and where you're not seeing those founders making any sort of waves. So you have to have the imagination of all imagination. So I have that imagination. But I had to um, share that and, and get people to dream with me, as Alfred Lynn from Sequoia says. So Susan Kimberlin started dreaming with me. And she said, you know what? It was, it was September uh, 15th, I think was the day she said yes. She said, you know what? Let's see what you can do. I'm in. And she wired. And the day she wired... Um, I had spent the night before in a hotel because I was able to scrape together money from my mom, my aunt, and my girlfriend at the time. Scrape together money to be in this hotel because I hadn't been the whole time. And that, so that night, and I, you know, the next day, I, uh, I, Susan wired the money. I got a ticket because I was in Silicon Valley at the time. I'd made my way there, kind of one-way ticket. And I flew to L.A., which is where I'm based now. And I never looked back. What did that feel like, the the first yes? Um, the first, so I'm glad you said the first yes rather than getting the check. Because a lot of people ask about, what was it like to get that money after having no money the whole time? The money part really wasn't, it didn't do anything. Because I was, I'm a, I'm a professional, even though I didn't know what I was a professional of. <laughs> I knew I was a professional. So the money was not mine. The money was for the company. So the yes, though, was everything. The yes was everything because I, this was September 2015. So that would have been three, three so years into every day of my life getting told, no, you're not going to be able to do this fund. You're not going to be able to do this dream. Whatever this thing you, this thing you have in your mind is impossible being told that over and over again, having people shut doors in my face or uh, laugh at me uh, in some cases, or others, which is even worse, like pat me on the head and say, oh, you'll do okay, or hope you make it. For three solid years, and and, and then time is running out, running out. I'm seeing all these companies that are just falling to the wayside, and I'm like, these companies could have been supported. Um, To get that yes of confidence that's all I needed. I mean, I, I was already confident without it. So imagine when you have someone who has has this uh, illustrious career at Salesforce and PayPal and her history, product manager, knows a few people, has a few connections, and she's saying, I don't know what this is going to become, but I believe that you can make it into something That is that was incredibly big that was the that was the biggest blip on the radar everything since then has been um has been a result of that so people have invested a lot more money than susan did that original amount 
But that, that I will never forget. That has more impact to me. Millions of dollars don't compare to that first check. First, yes. I still mm-hmm. remember mine. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so from there. Um, yeah. So we're in September 2015. And now all of a sudden you and I are sitting together in December 2018. Yeah. You've been on the cover of Fast Company. Like things are <laughs> your like meteoric yeah. rise now. What has the last three years been like? Oh, oh, it's been hard. It's been, it's been hard. It's been... It's, I, you know, lowest lows to highest highs. And it's been incredibly um, inspiring and motivating for me personally. And and I am in awe of the people that I get to work with every day and the people that we back as a fund and the people who back us. Like that group of, of, you know, two or 300 people in that orbit who are investors in our fund, who are founders that we've invested in and who are employees of Backstage Capital and Studio, I don't, um, I don't even know how to, how to describe how grateful I am to them and how in awe they keep me in every day, like all day long. I'm just like, oh my God, how did, how did I get here? You know? So that part has been so wonderful and outweighs any, any bad. Um, but I definitely never want to walk away from a, an interview or a conversation with people thinking that it's been all good because it hasn't. It has been, I've had a few meltdowns. I've had a few, I've had a lot of tears. Um, it's been higher stakes every, every quarter is, a, is a higher stakes. Every, um, you know, we've had times where we thought we were going to get $100,000 or $250,000. And then it didn't come through the day we thought it was going to be there in the bank. And that is a roller coaster. That is a uh, um, that is not for the faint of heart. And we've had a lot of, you know, companies, we have 100 companies in our portfolio. So we are constantly getting, you know, something's putting out a fire. Something's wrong. So we get to share with their the great stuff that happens with them. Oh, we raised a million dollars or, oh, we got this great customer that we've been looking for for six months or like, so that is great. But it's like having a hundred kids off to college. You're going to get the call, you know, hey, I need more money or, hey, you know, I got into the class that I was looking for, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it's, um, it's just a lot to maintain and a lot to deal with on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And um, I think, I mean, I've had a ton of fun with it. I've had a lot of fun and had a lot of good times, but I work, uh, I'm in this bubble where I, self-imposed, where I'm alone a lot. I spend a lot of time by myself on purpose so that I don't, um, so that I can just be the best version of this that I can be. Yeah. So it's been a lot of things. So how much money have you raised to date? Mm-hmm. So we've raised well so we've raised and deployed about 5 million dollars into these 100 companies. This year we announced our 36 million dollar fund to invest a million dollars at a time. As I say this year. So in 2018 we announced our uh, 36 million dollar fund to invest in Black women, $1 million at a time. It's about damn time fun. Yes, that's the, the nickname <laughs> that I said on Twitter that took off. I love and, it. Uh, that was great. So you mentioned highest of the highs, lowest of the lows. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if there's like a lowest of the low point. I have a feeling for you this, is, you're, this isn't the case for you, but and any of the lowest of the low points have you ever considered walking away? Oh, yeah. 
course. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't have. Um, I'm not like made of steel. <laughs> I am human. <laughs> I have thought. I haven't thought about like throwing my hands up and saying I'm not going to do this anymore. Backstage, that's not going to exist. I'm Audi. Peace. Haven't done that. But I have many times thought about. Um, the way I look at it, again, I do a lot of this, I, I compared a lot to children. And sometimes you have to do what's best for the child. And so I sometimes think about, since it is so difficult to raise, and since it is so difficult to uh, have enough money, even with millions and millions of dollars having enough for the amount of companies that we are wanting to support and this whole movement and being looked at as someone and a, a group of people who are like part of this movement. It's, it's, a, it's a little different than just having a company and kind of being in the shadows. Sometimes I wonder if uh, something, if there's a way to get us more stable that would be a lesser financial outcome for me personally, but would save what we're doing and make what we're doing easier. So I think about those types of options a lot. And I just think about them in the, in the context of, I need to have these things in mind so that I am not getting high off my own supply. So I'm not on some sort of hype wheel where I am not willing to check ego over what's best for us. And I thankfully, um, um, as much as like I've been out like on press and in press and stuff, I'm like the ego part is not really there. I'm kind of I'm 38, and for until I was 35, I didn't have any money, <laughs> and I also have slept on the floor of places, and I've also didn't have health insurance until this year. So I'm kind of like. You didn't catch me at 22 where I could maybe be influenced by and thinking that I'm something that I'm not. It's like, oh, this is great. Cool. I can like I can I can get a like a cupcake delivered to my apartment or my hotel room anytime I want. And I'm going to pay the three ninety nine charge. And it's cool. It's, I don't have to worry about it. That's how I think about <laughs> that's my luxury. Uh, so highest of the highs. I'm yeah. It's about for you. Like. What is there like a moment that you can talk about that is just like epitomizes like holy shit this is so <laughs> awesome. You know I have to say the Fast Company cover yeah. was was that I mean there were there have been many and they've involved a lot of other people but selfishly I'll say that finding out about the cover just finding out that I because I kind of found out I was a little slow on the uptake because apparently they thought that I knew that that's what they were considering me for for this story. And um, so like they started talking to me in this sum like early summer, late spring of 2018. And they flew out one of the, there's two writers, JJ and, and Ainsley. They flew out Ainsley while she was like something like four months pregnant or something like that. Sorry. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so they flew her out and she did this, whole, like she spent a whole day with us, flew from New York to LA, spent a whole day with us. And I was like, cool, this is going to be in the print issue. And it's going to be, oh my goodness. And I love Fast Company so much. I used to read Fast Company all the time when I was starting the fund. And I was just ecstatic about that. And then we're talking and she's like, yeah, and if you get the cover, then blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
if I get the who and the where and the how. And then she's like, yeah, you're, you're up for the cover. And I'm like, and she, and, and Christy, my business partner, she was like, Arlen, why do you think they flew her out here? She's pregnant and she's flew across the country. It's not just for like giggles, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. So then um, a few weeks went by and they, I was actually in Berlin because my fiance, uh, who may be my wife by this time, uh, because my fiance lives in Germany and is German. And I was spending August in Berlin. And while I was there, I got an email that said, from the editor that said, you are indeed the cover of October issue. And um, we just wanted to let you know. And I was just like, I remember I, I asked Anna to come into the room and just read the emails to make sure I was reading it correctly. Cause I thought, <laughs> you know how you have like out of body experience sometimes you're like, oh, I'm dreaming or I read that wrong. I wanted to say that, but it's actually saying the opposite. So she walked in and she's like very German and very like direct and she's like, you're the cover of October 8, 2018 uh, Fast Company. I'm like, oh, well, fantastic then. Um, I'll go back to eating this string cheese in, this, <laughs> in, in my sweatpants and then we'll see what happens. And so um, I then um, didn't, uh, I uh, didn't see the cover until I was, I saw the cover on a Monday and it was announced on a Thursday. So I saw it very shortly. So there's video footage of me crying when I see it physically. I saw the picture of it. Then two days later, I saw it physically for the first time. I didn't know I was going to see it. I thought I was going to have to wait to see it in the store. And I just, it, I remember when they brought it to me, I looked at it. I was like, oh, this is cool. I was like, wow, this is so surreal. I was with my mom, my friend Diane. I was with a bunch of people. And I was like, you know, this is so surreal that I can't even cry. This is just awesome. And as soon as I said, I can't even cry, something happened in my head. And, and I just went, Whoa. I, just, <laughs> I just turned into a blubbering mess and Diane decided to film it because she's lovely like that. <laughs> she was giggling while she was filming it. And she it was it was a moment. It was like because when it happened, when I was crying, I just sort of it wasn't just that it was fast company, it was just it was it was a well-known business magazine. I was the first black woman who was not a celebrity to be on the cover. First black woman who was working in tech and, you know, stuff uh, to be on the cover. And I just thought, man, four years ago, if I had seen somebody on the cover of Fast Company, I don't know what it would have done. Like, I was looking for her. I was looking for her. And now I am her. Oh, my God. And I just thought about, like, some teenage black girl in Mississippi passing by it and looking at it or getting it in the mail. And it just... I, I couldn't take it. And so the whole experience when it came out and people were taking pictures all over the world with it and sending it, sending those pictures, like uh, that's just been really, really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Top three-ish pieces of advice mm. you would have for people considering starting their own thing, especially potentially in an arena where they feel like they might not belong? Top three. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> top three. Um, well, top, top, number one is always going to be being true to yourself, being authentic to who you are, what you believe, what you're willing to stand for against all odds, against everything. And, um, I have personally and professionally lost hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point because of that very thing that I say to people. 
And it's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. It's not like it's not like you're going to um, just be smiling and say, oh, I just lost all this money or this opportunity because I had my morals and my standards. But you will, in the long run, be very happy with yourself. And it's the it's the thing the thing thing that you can most control about anything that you start. You can't control the people that are around you that are part of this. They're going to do their thing. You can't control circumstances. You can't control the market. You can't control appetite of customers or readers or whoever, uh, whatever the project is. But you can control how you act and react in situations and in and in the journey and you really want to optimize for being able to live with yourself because through good and bad you're you're all you've got really you're the one true constant in all of this and so if you can't face yourself because you made this decision that was a short-term high or short-term fix for a long-term situation you're it's really hard to to go backwards and, and fix that and for yourself and and for um, the situation. So that's, there's there's so much that comes from that. And, so, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have been on the cover of Fast Company. I would not have invested in a hundred companies. I would not have nearly 40 employees after three years. I wouldn't have any of this. Um, and maybe it's more than that by then. Um, but I wouldn't have any of this if, um, if I didn't, if I wasn't who, myself. Because everybody, like, there are other people doing their thing. People were attracted to what I was doing. And that is why we have these things. So that's one. Um, I'd say one is kind of a, it's a, uh, it may sound like like I'm trying to skip a step here. But truly, a lot of times when I'm talking to people, I realize that the best thing that I can say to them, because they haven't even thought of this themselves, is just start. Like someone asked me in Helsinki recently, they said, what is your advice? We're doing a Q&A. And they said, what is your advice uh, for someone who would like to start a fund to invest in underrepresented founders in Finland? And that was a question that was in front of a lot of people. And I was on stage with the microphone. And I said, my advice is to start a venture capital fund <laughs> for underrepresented people in Finland. Just to do it, to give yourself permission to start. You have. It's about like all of these things, I think, the common thread is about your own control and ownership of what you, are, you can do. You don't have to, as long as you stay within certain legal bounds by wherever you are, you don't have to ask permission for as much as we are all asking for permission. You know, uh, the more intersectional you get, the more you do that. So if you're a woman, um, you may do that. If you're a white woman, I think you uh, you have a certain, I, I, I like the, the white woman privilege sort of thing that happens because I've, I've witnessed it my whole life. A lot of my friends are white women and I've just witnessed it in awe. I'm like, oh, that's, she just walking in there. Huh? She's like, oh, she's going to skip in front of me. That is amazing. I love it. Uh, so, but the more you do it, you know, even like women in general, we ask, can we be in the room? We ask, can we do this? Just start it. Just start it. Think about the most mediocre dude that you know and what he has allowed, given himself permission to do. And just like say, well, if he can do that, I can certainly do that. So that's two. 
Third piece of advice for anyone starting something is uh, all about self-care and about uh, comfort and about like being unashamed in your your uh, pursuit of comfort. So like wear the most comfortable clothes you can imagine whenever you want to. Um, You are not, and again, this is for women mostly, you are not someone's ornament or their, you know, accessory or their piece of furniture. You do not have to smile when someone tells you to. You do not have to put on, uh, you know, your best dress to go to a meeting. You don't have to. I mean, if you like that, awesome, do that. Do that 10 times than you do now, the amount of time. But there's a lot of times where people have to, like, they think they have to, women have to, like, turn into these perfect versions of themselves to get a guy to pay any attention to them in a meeting. And, like, life is too short for all that. Life is too short for that. I remember when I was, um, it was, like, 2000, like, top of 2016, I went to New York and I had a few meetings. And I met with this woman who I was super excited to meet with. And when I got into her office, and she was kind of like a fashion person, you know, and I was excited to meet with her. I thought she, she was a black woman. I thought she might invest in the fund. I was super excited. And I admired her. And the first thing she said to me after she sat down was, I saw a picture of you wearing blue. You can't do that. You're wearing like a really just normal blue shirt. You can't do that in press. You have to have a more professional headshot than that. And that was it. She said, if you don't start dressing better, you're never going to get investors. And that was her projecting. And that was her trying to help. And her it, the, the meaning behind it, I absolutely know, was good intent, was a good intention behind it. But it really, really rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought, wow, that is so weird that she would use our time together and our energy telling me that I wasn't dressed right. When I can get that on any street corner, anytime from a guy. And so um, just a few days later, um, after she told me I would never get an an investor if I kept dressing like the way I did, which was, you know, jeans, T-shirt or a hoodie or whatever, um, Mark Andreessen invested in our fund. And he's invested in every fund since. No big deal. And, you know, (laughs) I don't think Mark Andreessen could tell you what, what I was wearing any day of any week. He could care less about that, right? So um, it ties into it, like being yourself. Like if I had, imagine if I left that meeting and what a lot of people would have done, I think, is said, wow, I, I need to go down the street and I need to get like a, a suit that I can wear when I go into these types of meetings because she said I'm not going to get this investment. What if I had changed that? And what if that then because of that, I had been uncomfortable and I wasn't able to talk the way I normally do about the company and I wasn't able to 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 deliver the way I normally do because I was so worried about a damn shirt or dress or whatever, or makeup or however you put it, um, maybe I wouldn't have what I have. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten the, the, the investment or would have taken longer. I just say, just, you know, put all of it into, how can I be me? How can I be like the best version of myself? Sure, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be respectful. I'm trying not to be a slob. Uh, you know, I have respect for people, but you got to like really take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's only a few years you have on this earth. So spend them wisely. 
Um, so one thing you mentioned there is a uh, privilege that white women have. Yay! Um, so I, I talked to... <laughs> I love that subject. <laughs> I, love, I talked to the wonderful Condom Mason about this. She actually spoke at one of our events about this. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she kind of was like... You know, you have privilege whether or not you want it or not. Yeah, everybody. Uh, so it's, it's like nothing to be, there's, there shouldn't be shame around it, but what mm-hmm. you need to ask yourself is what you're going to do with that mm-hmm. privilege. Um, so from your perspective, there are a lot of well-intentioned white female founders out here. Sure. Um, and what, funders. What can they do with their privilege to be better allies? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I definitely agree and say that so everyone has some privilege. I have privilege because I am able to walk upstairs rather than needing a wheelchair. I am tall. Um, I'm confident. That's a privilege that, you know, some people can't speak up for themselves. All sorts of privileges that I have. Privilege is not the bad word. Entitlement is the bad word. So, um, yeah, I spend a lot of time with white women. There are a few widows on our team. My business partner is a white woman. My fiance is a white woman. Um, uh, and I've spent a lot of time with both. And I guess the best way to answer this, I think, is like thinking about what the white women allies who I respect the most do, how they, how they handle themselves. And I'll take Christy as an example. So Christy is my investment partner at Backstage, she makes investment decisions. She's also um, chief of staff, so she she can hire and fire and all sorts of things like I can. And she she gets, like Lena Waithe was saying this recently. It's just, there was, someone asked her point, like, what can I do to help you? She's like, get out of my way. <laughs> just get out of my way. That's how you can help. Because I don't need necessarily your help. So sort of understanding that, do you need to run in and save things? Or is simply being quiet and letting our voice being heard, is is that the greatest thing you can do? It's like um, giving someone on the street $10, $20 and not tweeting about it. You know, this not, I'm saying anyone, like, you know, people go out, oh, I just are not, you know, they'll videotape them doing a good, themselves doing a good deed or something. What if we don't do that? What if we just do the good deed and we don't announce it every time? And so a lot of people can get that. So with white women, I think I'm not going to put them all in the same category because they're not all the same. You're not all the same person. Everybody's a little different. It's like black women and uh, Latino women and all sorts of things. But I think it's like sometimes people will reach out to me who are white women in this space and they will invite me to a dinner or some sort of event where they want me to they want me to have a seat at the table. They're excited that they, you know, they use their privilege to get me a seat at the table and then um, they'll proceed to spend the entire night at this event harping on the fact that they got me the seat at the table and isn't it so great that you're here and aren't you so happy to be here and I did this great thing that's not helping me I have stuff to do like I you know I'll invite you to the barbecue next time cool great we'll be even Stevens you know (laughs) instead it might be interesting to say look I'm going to invite you to this dinner I'm not going to tell anyone that um 
that I was the reason you're there. I hope you show you know show up. Let me know if you need anything, and 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 just do your thing. Work the room, and that's it. And just you know, smile and gun it when I walk in. <laughs> you know, it, it's it, it, Lena's very right. It's a it's about kind of moving to the side, letting us come to you and saying this is what I need, and then maybe providing that if you have it, if you want to. But it's it's it's. I had a friend who. She, she used to like to give me like secondhand things. And that was her way of, it was her way of like, I got you, you know, I'm gonna give you. But it, she didn't understand how insulting it was. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like that's what white women do. They say, well, I have this, I have privilege. I've been taught that I need to share my privilege. So I'm gonna go in my closet. I'm gonna give this black person, this poor black woman, my coat so she won't be warm. And what we're saying is, honey, we are just as, we can go toe to toe with you. We're gonna be at the store. We're gonna buy the coat firsthand. We just, um, you know, when you walk into the room, don't lock the door behind you. Don't get in my way. Don't put your foot out. Just let us be equal and let us be with you. And um, I think that would would make a big difference. And I have to say that it's not necessarily if you're listening and you're like, or if you know someone who struggles with this, it's not the easiest thing in the world because it's not easy to articulate what we need as black women. And it's not easy to parse through as white women the different messaging you're getting. So you may think you're doing the right thing and then someone else has a different opinion of that. Not all black people are the same. So that one thing you did may rub one person the wrong way and be the greatest thing to the other person. Mm -hmm. So then none of this is easy. None of this is like wrapped in a bow. Um, But for me personally, my personal taste is recognize that we are equals. You just happen to have been born wrapped in a package that is more palatable, you know, for this country at this time and these thousands of years that we could have been born. That's it, that's all it is. So, yeah. All right, I know we need to wrap up. Uh, Cool. The final question. Yeah. Speaking of the, this country and this time that we're in, I'm curious mm-hmm. what's giving you hope for the future. Um, Robert Mueller. <laughs> 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 what's giving me hope for this for the for the future is um, in this job. If you take away all the ups and downs and the fundraising and the trolls and all of that, if you take that away. And you even take away the fact that we're investing in underrepresented founders. And just think about the fact that I get to be an investor. I get to see every month hundreds of companies and meet hundreds of people who are out to change some part of the world and some part of someone, give someone else a higher quality of life. I get to see that every single day, either by um, authentic encounter or on demand. So I can go out right now and say, I would like to see 10 companies that are working on sustainable energy. And within minutes, I will see those companies in front of me. The hope that you get from that purview, you know, knows no bounds because I know that things are being worked on that are going to uh, make life better. And I know that people are, the future is now. And I've also seen some, really um, wonderful things happen. I've seen people at their best. 
you know, in this world where we get to see people at their worst, I see people at their best every day in some way or another. And so that's like, that keeps me going. And also the, the hope and promise that General Hospital will be on the air for another 50 years if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> A huge thanks today goes out to Arlen Hamilton and the whole team over at Backstage Capital. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.